Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chapter 1. Dudley Demented. The hottest day of the summer so far was drawing to a close, and a drowsy silence lay over the large, square houses of Privet Drive. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Book 5 of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Order of the Phoenix. Matt, we're in book five. How do you feel about book five? I like book five. I also find book five infuriating. Ooh. Like I think I had the least, I had the least enjoyment reading book five. Not because it's a worse book than the other books, mm-hmm. but because the level of administrative, oh yeah, like yeah, malfeasance is just yes. I get claustrophobic. It feels like there's no way out, and you can really tell what the students are feeling, right? And so it made me very angry when I read it. The first time. It offends you as an educator. Yeah, and as a person. <laughs> With a soul. Yeah. What do you think, Vanessa? What do you think of book five? Book five has really grown on me. I first read it, you know, 15 years ago, and it was like, uh, Harry is so annoying in this book. And then someone pointed out to me that Harry is traumatized in this book. And I was like, ah, yes. It is a trauma processing book. And so, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough book, but I think it's just really smart. Yeah. Matt, our Every Flavored Bean conversation today is going to be discussing nicknames. My family is big on nicknames, so I'm very excited to talk about this because we find out many of the nicknames Dudley Dursley has in this chapter. And so it seems worth discussing. Can't wait, Nessa. Me neither, Maddiekins. <laughs> And everybody, we have a very exciting announcement. We have a Harry Potter pilgrimage coming up this late summer with Colette Potts, but we have another one coming up in May of 2024 with the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text original troupe. It is going to be me, Casper Turkyle, and Ariana Nettleman. And we're so excited. We're going to be doing book three, and it's going to be awesome. You can find out more at readingandwalkingwith.com. Matt, we are starting this season with a beautiful theme, which is the theme of dreams, dreaming. What story do you have to start us off? I'm going to tell you about two dreams that I can remember having, the ones that kind of stick with me, and just like what those two dreams alongside each other, like what they tell us about dreaming. The most vivid dream I can remember as a child happened at my grandparents' house. My dad's mom and dad lived about a mile from us where I grew up in Michigan, and My mom and dad took a vacation when I was in second grade to the United Kingdom, as it happens. And we went and stayed, I think it was October, we went and stayed at my grandparents' house for a week, right? And that was not something that happened at any other time in my childhood. We didn't stay at my grandparents' house at any other time. Mostly, my parents didn't travel without us. So this is a pretty unique thing, and I think that's part of the reason why it was memorable. And so we went over there. I was in second grade. My brother, older brother, was in, must have been in seventh grade. And I... I woke up in the middle of the night, sleeping in the guest bedroom at my 
grandparents' house, and I had this bedroom to myself. And it was middle of the night, so it was dark, and the door was ajar. And I remember my older brother, Dan, like standing outside the door, looking in through the small crack in the door, and just standing there and looking at me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why is he standing there looking at me? Like, there's no reason for him to be standing there. And I also remember, like, not being able to move. I wasn't paralyzed. It just wasn't moving. Like, I didn't want to move. I didn't want him to know I was awake or something like that. And then eventually I fell back asleep. So the next morning at breakfast, we're sitting around the breakfast table at my grandparents' house, and my grandpa and grandma are there, and my older brother Dan is there. And I said to my brother, a little bit confrontationally, my older brother, I said, nice job trying to scare me standing outside the doorway in the middle of the night. And he was like, I didn't do that. And I was like, that's exactly what a person who stood outside my doorway <laughs> trying to scare me would say. And then, and then he was like, he was like, no, I really didn't do that. And my grandparents was like, no, he did I don't think he did. And then like, we went through this conversation and I was like convinced. I was like, you absolutely did. This 100% happened. How, how can you claim this? And after the end of like 10 minutes and like him protesting and my grandparents saying like, no, we, we were awake. We would have known or we would have heard him up or whatever. They were like, you were dreaming. You were dreaming. You were dreaming. And I was finally, I was like, okay, I guess I was dreaming. If, if my brother listens to this podcast episode and tells me tomorrow Hey, guess what? I was pulling your leg all these years. I was actually out there. I would believe it because that's how vivid this experience was to me. Now, usually my dreams aren't like that, right? Usually my dreams don't feel so present. Like they don't feel immediately experienced. They feel like more like thoughts in my head, right? But what's interesting about this is that incredibly vivid dream experience, which to me felt like fully lived life. They told me it didn't happen and I just kind of let go of it. But then I also have this recurrent dream, which everybody has, right, where I think we talked about this in a Every Flavor Bean episode recently, where I have not gone to Spanish class all semester, and now I have to go take my final exam, and if I don't take the final exam, I can't graduate and all this stuff. Like, that dream never feels real in the moment. I wake up, I know it was a dream, and I am unsettled all day. Like, all day, I feel like, oh my gosh, something, I have something to do. I feel anxious all day. And so the reason I lift up these two dream experiences is what dreams demand of us is to really reckon with the nature of what's real and what's not and how it affects us, right? We have this thing that felt so real, but which I was perfectly willing to accept was not real as a child and had no effect upon me, really. And this other thing which does not feel real in the moment and I am perfectly aware is not real, but has a real effect upon my life in the days after I have this like this panic Spanish exam dream. And I think this is important with respect to the beginning of this book and when we think about dreaming in the Harry Potter series. Because Harry Potter in book four, chapter one, has a dream, which is not a dream. It's actually Frank Bryce being killed. And in this chapter, Harry Potter has a dream, which is not actually happening. It's a memory of something that happened. But again, this has an actual effect, a real effect upon what his day is like, what his experience of the world is like. Like dreams really force us to navigate the kind of sometimes hazy space between what's real or not, because whether we experience something really moves back and forth across a factual boundary. Yeah, Matt, I'm so grateful for those stories and that we're having this conversation because dreams do play such a large role in the Harry Potter series, right? I mean, even Harry talks about having a dream about Hagrid dropping him off in a flying motorcycle in book one, chapter two. And then in one of the very last chapters of the Harry Potter series, right, we have this conversation at King's Cross where there's the famous line, of course it's happening inside your head, but why on earth should that mean it's not real, right? So I think that trying to reconcile sort of as we're about halfway through the series, what our thesis sort of is on dreaming and what role we think dreams have in the Harry Potter series, to your point, they play so many different roles, is important. And I'm excited to figure out what I think, because I don't know. Yeah. Before we get to the 30-second recap, if I can just make an etymological detour. Please, our first one of book five. So dream comes from a proto-Germanic root, which actually means deception or illusion. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. I, think it's, I think it's really interesting. And this is the most fascinating part of the etymology. There's a word in Old English, which they haven't been able to establish a philological connection to the Germanic word that meant music. Like oh. dream meant music in English. And the idea of sleeping visions was just the word sleep. 
right? And so in English for a long time, to dream was just music and to have a dream, to have sleeping visions was just, you talked about sleep. The idea of dreaming as a sleeping vision was brought to England from the Vikings who took it from German and introduced the idea of dreaming not so much as music, but as having a sleeping vision from this kind of root word that is related to deception or illusion. And then the, the kind of metaphorical meanings of dream happen a lot later. The idea of dream as an imagination, like or using your imagination to dream something up, that arises in the 16th century. And then the idea of like a dream as like an ideal or an aspiration or a goal doesn't arise until the 19th century. So from a lot of like a lot of the history of this word, it meant like the kind of illusory reality that we have when sleeping. It's fascinating. And it's so interesting because if real is how we spend our lives, then dreaming is real. Right. But if real is about impact on others' shared perception, right, It they're not yeah. real. It's, it's really interesting. When I have a dream that Colette does something hurtful to me, yeah. like it... It, we that really affects our day exactly right? you're like and we need to talk about it and even though she wasn't there with me for the first part when she did that awful thing to me <laughs> right we still need to process it as if she did in some ways because it becomes real in our relationship this is an ongoing fight peter and i have as to whether he should be held responsible for things he does to me in my dreams yes he should i think that's the thing I think that's the thing we figured out is like, like we are responsible for helping the person through it, even if we didn't actually do the thing, right? <laughs> well, Vanessa, it's time for us to have our 30-second recap. Okay. Can I count you in? Please do. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is laying outside of the Privet Drive window in order to overhear the news, and there's no news about um, Voldemort. And he's like, okay, thank goodness. He has this fight with Vernon Petunia, and then he goes on a sulky walk. While he's on a sulky walk, he runs into Dudley and his gang. Dudley has gotten really, like, swole, and he, um, he starts to confront Dudley and is trying to get him into a fight. And then Dementors come, and Dudley sort of freezes, and Harry is like, expect your Patronum. And then Mrs. Fig runs up and is like, I'm going to kill Mundungus Fletcher. And Harry is like, what the heck is going on? Nice one. It really was Good excellent. Job, Thank you. I was excellent. Matt, it is your turn now. I feel like I've made this really easy for you. On your mark, <laughs> get set, go. So Harry's hiding underneath the window trying to listen to the news because he wants to hear if there's any bad news of things happening. And there's bad news of things happening. He's wondering what's going on. And then Vernon and Petunia find him and there's a big fight. And then he walks around and he goes to Magnolia Circle? Third Circle. And he's, he's in a Magnolia something. And he sees Dudley with his friends and Dudley is a bully. And, and the other friends go off and Harry's like, hey, big D. And then they get into a fight and he's like, takes out his wand. And then Dementors come and, and Dudley punches him. And then he runs off and then he expects a Patronum. And then, and then uh, uh, Mrs. Fig runs up and she says, I'm so bad at Mundungus. I didn't know you could talk that fast. I, I Sometimes I can talk fast. Ooh, that was amazing. <laughs> so, Matt, the most obvious place to start is Harry's literal dream in this chapter. And I think the positioning of this dream is interesting in and of itself. Harry does not remember having the dream. Dudley overheard Harry talking in his sleep which makes Harry believe and us believe that Harry was having a dream because what Dudley is parroting back to Harry are things that Harry would reasonably have said in his sleep. Dudley is saying, oh, Cedric, uh, don't kill Cedric. And there was no way for Dudley to know that unless Harry was really yelling those things. And right, like there are so many forms of reality and unreality in this, right? Harry is dreaming something that kind of really happened, right? He's dreaming this moment with Cedric. But we know that Harry wasn't even given the opportunity to beg for Cedric's life. It's possible that Dudley is making up or misremembering exactly what Harry said in his sleep, right? Like, there is so much unknown about this dream in addition to the fact that what Harry was dreaming in that moment was a dream and therefore didn't really happen. Yeah, one of the things I was reflecting upon when thinking about Harry's dreaming here is that in my own kind of dream experience, and I know my dream experience is not exhaustive of the human experience of dreaming, but I've, I tend not to reproduce memories, even very painful or even traumatic memories. Although I do process pains and painful memories, usually they're like metaphorized or symbolized or transplanted into different settings, 
right? And I think when I first read this chapter or read this chapter this time, what I imagined to myself was that Harry was very literally reliving the events of what we know happened at the end of book four. But what your analysis just clued me into is that he can't have been or probably wasn't because he never said, oh, no, not when he never like tried to convince Voldemort not to kill Cedric. It happened too fast. There's some different version of the story that his dream reality is processing for him. And it maybe maybe it was in the cemetery. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe there's some other situation where he felt responsible for saving Cedric and was trying to save Cedric from this danger. We don't really know the content of this dream. What we do know, as you said, is that this trauma has affected him deeply. And the way he's processing it day to day is hiding in the bushes, listening to the news, hoping that this murderous threat is not spreading beyond the reach it's already had at Hogwarts. And how he's doing it when he's sleeping is through these kind of traumatic processing imaginations, memories, fabrications, illusions, dreams, whatever. I mean, it's hard to know what language to use, but the wrong language to use would be that it's not real. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Because it's an actual death that's undeniable. And it's the actual return of Voldemort, which many will try to deny. And so like the nature of reality becomes a very important question here. The fact that he's processing it through dreams, the fact that the trauma is real is really important because that links to the reality of the return of Voldemort and of the death of this child. Yeah, Matt, I love everything you said. And I want to return us to the dream as Dudley recounts it for a second, Hmm. because I am not a dream analyst, but it's also interesting, right? Dudley tells us that Harry is also yelling, dad, help me, dad. He's going to kill me, dad. Right. And again, if we believe that Dudley is at least somewhat representing what Harry is actually saying. And again, we do not know if he's accurately representing that. Dream Harry is frustrated that his dad can't help, is having to escalate what his pleas are in order to get his dad to help, but somehow believes his dad can help, right? Like Dream Harry is reaching out for his father. In book three, he learned that his father sort of lives in him, but isn't him. But he's still processing, understandably, this like odd magical reality where your father can come out of a wand and help you, and yet only to some extent. Mm. So I'm looking at the passage again now, since you quite wisely asked us to look at it more closely. It says that Harry admits through the narrator's voice that he did revisit the graveyard last night in his dreams. And there's a sense in which Dudley reminds him of that. Like that wasn't actually at the forefront of his mind, right? But it's not the same graveyard and the capacities and influences and roles of the different characters in this scene have shifted in ways that accentuate, I think, Harry's feeling of helplessness, his feelings of loss. So all those things were real in the graveyard, right? His sense of helplessness, his sense of loss, his wishing that there were adults there who could support him so this didn't all fall on him. But in the dreams processing of it, all those things are what rise up and start to play larger and larger roles. So it's not real in the strict sense of what actually happened, but it's real in the sense of this is what his experience of that moment was and is also what persists in his lived experience of surviving it. And I think I just want to return to the fact that, again, I didn't realize this until you kind of helped me think about how closely his dream graveyard experience corresponds to the actual moment of the graveyard and that they maybe don't need to be that close together, which is that you know, so much of what the ministry started to do at the end of book four and will continue to do throughout this chapter is question Harry's reality and insist that he's dreaming, insist that he's making up facts, either consciously or unconsciously, for other reasons, for attention, to process his own traumas, or because he's a because he wants to be a star or a celebrity or something. Right. And so it's not just an academic question whether something's real or not or what how we navigate the boundary between reality and unreality because that is actually what's at stake going forward in these books. What is definitely real to me in this paragraph, Matt, that I have never thought about before and I do think should potentially inform the way we read the rest of this book is this come and help me, dad, mom, come and help me, dad, help me, right? To some extent, this is what Harry is screaming 
in his awake time without the vulnerability of actually being able to scream that, right? This is what he wants to scream at Ron and Hermione, like, pay attention to me, right? Like, it's what he's going to want to scream at Dumbledore the whole time. And he keeps screaming other things, but it's wonderful. And it had never occurred to me that we have this in chapter one, that when his guard is down, what he is screaming is help me. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and I think that I said just a minute ago that like, oh, in my dreams, often my traumatic memories are transposed into a different setting and I need to translate it and uncover what's there. But even if we take Harry's current dream as literally reproducing what happened earlier in this, his 14th year, like it is also transposing an earlier trauma, (laughs) which was when his parents are killed and like he doesn't have his parents with him to help him all these years and he wishes they were there and there's something you know very heartening at the end of book four when they come out of Voldemort's wand and these shades like encourage him and and they are there to support him but in some ways that almost accentuates their absence the fact that they're not actually there with actual wands having this fight for him this is also a transposition of an earlier trauma and I think you're right the help me is that's from the beginning. That's throughout. It's what he finds at Hogwarts. It's why he leans into certain adults for support. It's also why he, even those the most supportive adults, why he doesn't always trust them and sometimes ought not to trust them because he's been lacking this kind of basic support since the beginning because of this this primary trauma. So Vanessa, that's the only literal dream that happens in this chapter. But there's there are several moments where we can think about the idea of imagined reality or the role that an imagined reality plays in affecting our lived experience, our real lived experience, right? And there's a really interesting, I think, juxtaposition of two imaginations or related imaginations in this chapter, which is that Harry really feels abandoned. I mean, you just talked about how he's he's dreaming, help me, help me. And he had this awful traumatic episode at the end of book four, he has these conversations with Ron and Hermione, with Dumbledore, with Hagrid. They feel like something's coming. They feel like they're gathering together and building up together. And there is this sense of foreboding, but also this sense of kind of corporate cause. Like, we're together in this, and we're going to do this together. And here we go. And then he goes home, and he's alone. And he doesn't hear from anybody (laughs) for too long. And no one's filling him in on what's going on. No one really tells him that the information he gets from Ron and Hermione is very spare and insufficient, and he feels really abandoned at the Dursleys. And what he starts to imagine is Ron and Hermione together in the burrow and all the effective and important things they must be doing in this fight and how he is just stuck in this place. And he just has this kind of resentment. He just, when he imagines these friends, his best friends, the people he cares about most in the world in many ways, when he imagines them, He imagines them with jealousy, with resentment, with judgment, right? And then the Dementors come, right? As we as we explained in the 30-second recap, the Dementors show up in Little Winging and walk Magnolia Crescent and meet Dudley and Harry there. And they tried to suck the soul out of Dudley. And Harry's first couple of attempts at casting his Patronus fail. And suddenly this vision of Ron and Hermione appears before him and his imagination generates the kind of joy and happiness that's necessary to to successfully cast a Patronus. And one does. A stag runs out and saves him. And then he points the stag in the direction of Dudley and saves Dudley as well. And it works, right? And what's interesting to me is like in both cases, he has to imagine these people he loves, Ron and Hermione. But in the first case, he imagines his friends with resentment and judgment and maybe some jealousy, and it really weighs him down and it makes him feel trapped. And he is trapped. I mean, to be clear, like, I'm not necessarily judging him for having these imaginations because he really has been neglected and abandoned here. But it's only when he can imagine these people he loves in a different light that he gets the joy he needs to cast the Patronus. And just those things, the idea of like, the imaginary is real. Like how we imagine things actually affects who we are and what we're able to do. And his imagination plays a necessary role in his responding to these dementors and saving his own and Dudley's life. And, you know, to be clear, Ron and Hermione haven't changed in the right. last, you know, in that five minutes. He it's not like they were bad and became good. He got a text exactly from right. them being like, we're exactly. thinking about you. Right. None of that stuff happened. He just imagined it differently, but it makes a real difference. 
Yeah, it's actually incredible what a difference we know all of that makes in our real lives, right? I used to have a big problem with Casper Turkyle by not assuming good intentions in him. And then over years was like, oh, Casper literally almost always has good intentions. And it, right, like it just changed our whole friendship, right? Just being able to, yeah, change my imagination about him. And I think that this is where Harry's resilience is, right? Like this is the genius and the courage and the incredible everything of Harry Potter, the boy, is that when needed, he can imagine love. And no matter how desperate his situation is, he seems to have that reserve within him. And, you know, there's no mention of God in these books, but I think that that is often how people think of God's love, that even, right, like you can be inside the whale and God still loves you. And for an atheist, I love that Harry, in an upcoming chapter, you know, the Wizengamot is going to say, like, you can do a full Patronus. And it's, it is because Lupin taught him and it is because he's practiced, but it is also dispositionally because this is a boy capable of hope in hopeless situations. And it's, it's incredible. And I have mixed feelings about the various ways that that is rewarded in the text. But overall, I think it is something, if not to demand of each other, to aspire to a version of in our own lives. Because I, I do think it can sometimes positively impact the way we walk through the world. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Yeah, and I, what I'm about to say is a yes and, not a, a no but of comment, course. right? Which is that it is it is because Harry's dispositionally that way. It's also because Ron and Hermione actually are those people. Absolutely. Right, right? which is that, like, I think even with people that we trust and love, 
like often when we get in a mood, we can tell ourselves stories about them that make us angry at them. Sure. <laughs> right? Like, oh, they're doing this and they're being selfish in that way. And and usually it's because we want to be angry, right? There's something in us that is feeling like we need to feel that anger to cast some blame. But if Ron and Hermione were kind of selfish people who were not good right. to Harry, he would not be able to pull himself out of that. Right. Right? When he comes to it, he knows that they are good. And even if they're not, they don't know, they're not perfect. They don't always do things right. Right. But he knows that they're good and he does actually love them and he knows that they love him. And so he can actually at last settle into this faith in that love and that can give him joy, even if he's not super happy with their communications the last few weeks, right? Like yeah. it can be both things and he can get there because there is something from them that is strong enough to bear his impatience and get to the deeper joy and the deeper love. I completely agree with all of that. And the series seems to have an odd relationship to that truth or believe in like deep repressed memories, right? Because hmm. we also know that Harry has always had these amazing dreams, right? In book one, chapter two, he tells the Dursleys, who are not excited about this information, that he has a recurring dream about a flying motorcycle. And we know that that is based on a real experience that he had. He got transported on a flying motorcycle. And I think that that fantasy, that like incredible feeling of, oh my gosh, the world is full of possibilities, like flying motorcycles is one of the things that sustains and develops and creates the Harry who is resilient and has a big imagination and sees the world as one full of possibilities. And I think it's related to that, you know, the, the quote from Dumbledore that you pulled out of book seven earlier in our conversation, right? Like the fact that it happens in your head, who's to say that's not real? That's not the exact quote, obviously. But the spirit of it is just this idea that what we need to imagine to make us dispositionally capable of encountering the world as it is, is that's fine. Whatever you need to imagine to, to get there, like this Patronus moment is a great example of that. Who knows what is actually going on with Ron and Hermione in this actual moment? What happens is Harry is able to imagine them as this source of strength and support, and that carries him forward. I think it's also worth saying that Harry is repeatedly traumatized. His childhood at one year old begins in trauma. It's repeated because of the family he lives with. It just was re-triggered or re-traumatized or a new trauma was added to it in the last chapter. And bears saying that, you know, relationships, what we need from others, how we lean upon others, that gets complicated by these traumatic episodes. And, and so we're seeing Harry navigate this and we're seeing him figure it out. And the imagination, how we think about the world, how we think about others, how we imagine others in their relation to us, all that factors into how well we can navigate the world around us and the threats and opportunities that, that come to us. Vanessa, we are going to move on to our sacred reading practice now. And this week, we are resuming our practice of Lectio Divina, one of my favorite practices. It's like <laughs> top five. Well, Matt, I picked a sentence for us at random. Great. Dudley lay curled up on the ground, whimpering and shaking. So the first step of Lectio Divina in the sort of classical Christian tradition is called Lectio, which means just reading. But the way we do it in the Harry Potter sacred text tradition is we just talk about the literal meaning of the sentence. So what's, Vanessa, what is literally going on in the sentence? Well, the Dementors have just left. The Patronus has just been expecto patronum away. And Harry has just sort of come out of this trance of dealing with them. And he's like, oh, my God, my T-shirt is sweaty. And then he sort of looks up. And what he sees as he's like, Dementors were just here, is Dudley curled up on the ground, whimpering and shaking, right? Like this big guy who we do periodically see shrunken by the wizarding world, right? But this guy who just a few pages ago was like full of all the bravado in the world has just gone through this horrible thing and is now curled up on the ground whimpering and shaking. Yeah, I think the other thing that's happening literally is Harry's realizing that 
even though in many ways they've escaped, Dudley has also not escaped. Dudley is not in a fit state. He's In this next sentence, we hear that he's not sure he can stand up. He wants to figure out if he can stand up. Harry knows that Dudley has been pretty spiritually harmed, emotionally harmed by this experience, even if his soul hasn't been sucked out of him. And I think Harry's realizing that in this moment. Yeah. Can you read the sentence again for us, Vanessa? Dudley lay curled up on the ground, whimpering and shaking. So the second step of Lecto Divina is called meditatio. Meditatio in the classical sense just means sort of meditation. But here on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, we use this as a moment to kind of reflect allegorically, like to think about what other stories this moment reminds us of. So Vanessa, does this remind you of anything other kind of archetypical stories or stories in pop culture? Yeah, I'm going to expose my poor education in this one, but Hmm. I think because it's described so visually what's happening with Dudley, that he's curled up on the ground in the shaking, it reminds me of those sort of like Renaissance paintings of some sort of religious setting where there's like a saint or something, right, like not in the main frame of the picture, which is maybe Christ or the Virgin Mary, but there's like something tangentially happening. There's some amazing story behind the symbolism of that, you know, creature lay curled on the ground, whimpering and shaking, but it's to the side or even like of a Rembrandt, right? If we're like not thinking of necessarily religious ones, right? We're like Rembrandt's even like his self-portrait, right? Like he's big and in the middle. And then there's all of this symbolic pain and detritus around him, like a dead chicken. And then you find out the dead chickens symbolized whatever for hundreds of years. That's what it reminds me of. I think you talking about these old kind of saints paintings made me think of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Mm -hmm. the Christian New Testament because the story is the Samaritan walks up upon a Judean person who's been beaten and left by the side of the road. And the question is, like, what's the responsibility here? What, what is a person supposed to do when you find a stranger who's, who's in need? Now, Dudley's not a stranger, but the idea of a person who's just utterly helpless. The event has ended in one sense in which there's no longer any active threat to the person, right? But the person is not recovered. What is your responsibility? Harry has to move from the responsibility of like, oh, I'm going to protect him from a dementor to like, now I need to care for him. I need to get him to safety or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Like that's the additional element of kind of protection. It's more than just preventing harm. Sometimes it's also facilitating healing. The other thing is, I don't know why I thought of this. One of my favorite childhood books, a book that I read recently to my kids, or to Danny and Sammy at least, is the novel Where the Red Fern Grows. (gasps) At the end, you know, I'll try not to spoil too much. One of the dogs gets pretty badly injured. Dan. And there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of whimpering and, and cowering. And there's a, at first glance, like, Dan doesn't seem so badly injured, but there's a deeper wound underneath that they discover. And I think with Dudley, right, something has happened to Dudley. We're going to learn this in the next couple of books. Dudley was spared from the worst, did not have his soul sucked from him. But we're going to learn that Dudley is not the same kid in a couple books that he is even 10 minutes ago in this chapter. Okay, Vanessa, let's move on to step three of Lectio Divina. Could you read the sentence for us one more time? Yes. Dudley lay curled up on the ground, whimpering and shaking. So the classical name for the step three of Lecta Divina is oratio, which means pray. Hmm. But on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, we reflect upon what it's speaking to in our own lives. So what about you, Vanessa? What do you think? I mean, it reminds me of when I broke my ankle while playing rec league basketball. And this just (laughs) this feeling of I couldn't I couldn't make words. And it turns out because of adrenaline and whatever. But I was just like, and what I remember profoundly is the silence is my, you know, coach and my mom sort of argued about whether or not my ankle was broken. I just remember watching it like it was a tennis match and not being able to speak. And so I, I guess I'm being quite literal. I was also like on the ground shaking and like unable to speak. And how lovely it was for me in that moment, you know, my mom was right there and like got me to the hospital. So a pretty different situation than Dudley. What about you, Matt? As I mentioned on the podcast before, I coached Little League with Danny and Sammy this year. And there was a game about midway through the season where a player got hit in the face by a pitch. 
there was some bruising. There was no concussion. There were no broken bones or anything. It was it was very scary, and we would not wish for it to happen again. But the child is fine now and has resumed playing and is happy. But I just remember, like, just in my mind, I can still see him crumpling to the ground when the ball hit his face. And the other thing that I remember is just sort of, like, the reaction. Like, lots of adults. You know, there were 15 parents in the other team's stands and 15 parents in our stands and then coaches and then adult umpires and just like i remember two people moved fast Mm -hmm. and it was this kid's parents Mm -hmm. right i remember everyone was just like what like no one moved but there were two people running and it was these two kids parents and then like after a beat like people in the stand started moving right right but just like that kind of pause like makes me wonder like where does that pause come from and how do you like how do you get to be the person that reacts more quickly apart from being you know, the parent who just does that in kind of instinctively, intuitively. And even myself, like the ump said, like, call 911, like immediately stood up and said, call 911. And I ended up dialing it and I couldn't figure out how to use my phone. Like, this is the thing. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, there's like the button for emergency. Right. And I, I was like, oh, I'll do that. That'll be quicker. Wait, how do I do that? How do I do that? I don't know how to do this. And then eventually I just swiped up and dialed 911 on the phone function of my phone. But like how much I froze. Yeah. But these other folks, the the parents of this child, were just there. Like, they somehow got over that hump of, like, freezing and were responding in this really immediate way. I mean, I think part of that is the clarity of the role, right? Yeah. Is, like, if if you you think that there is a parent in, right? Sorry, if it was clear to you that that kid's parent wasn't there, I think everybody would have had a a different instinct to run. Yeah. But yeah, no, those moments where you're like, right, this very basic thing, it, it can be hard, right? Which is what Harriet goes through. Like, can he walk, right? Yeah. Can we do these right. basic things? So Vanessa, let's move on to step four. Can you read the sentence one last time for us before we do step four? Dudley lay curled up on the ground, whimpering and shaking. So step four of Lectio Divina is classically called contemplatio, contemplation. And it usually involves just like a lot of silence, silent prayer. We, on Harry Potter and Sacred Text, use this step to think about what we are called to do. So what do you think, Vanessa? I mean, I think it's like just lay down on the ground with people sometimes, right? Like that's what those parents did. Yeah. Those parents weren't actually the ones to call 911, right? And yet their role was so important, which is just like run to your child. Yeah. And same with my mom, right? It's not like it actually wasn't my mom who ended up taking me to the hospital. It was my dad. But the instinct to just go run and lay down with someone, I think, is a really beautiful instinct and one I should. Yeah. I often want to do something productive, but sometimes you just lay down yeah. next to someone. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I'm thinking about this as well. Like what you said about people knowing what their role is, is important, right? And I think maybe I need to know my role, right? Just like if I go to an event like this thinking I'm a bystander, then I'll be a bystander. Right. And there's nothing wrong with going to a little league game and thinking, oh, I'm going to be a bystander. I'm going to watch a game and that's all. I, that's the only responsibility I have, right? But in a situation like that, especially when they're little kids, to also think like, oh, I'm also a parent. I'm a parent of the kids on the team. And like... I'm a grown-up. I'm a grown-up. Yeah, maybe to give myself permission beforehand to like, oh, I can take some action here if necessary and be more responsive. Again, not to fault myself for having expected to only be a fan and i hope that i only ever will be right but also to just to know my role to know my place in those situations and to know who i have the power to protect and who i have the power to help before the crisis happens so i'm not trying to figure out what it is after it does well thanks matt thank you vanessa lectio is great it really is even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Matt, it's time for this week's voicemail, and this week it is from Aaron. Hi, Matt and Vanessa. I am calling for a blessing for Hagrid. Um, I just finished listening to your episode on rest from the third book. And this blessing for Hagrid is based on an experience that I had when I recently got COVID. Um, I have two young children. They were five and three at the time. And so when I tested positive for COVID and was very unwell, um, luckily we had grandparents that were willing to drive four hours to pick my kids up. I quarantined. My spouse got COVID shortly after I did. So we were both quarantining at that time. And honestly, it felt luxurious (laughs) to just rest. And the only reason why I didn't feel guilty was because I had COVID and we have deemed that a type of illness that you are allowed to rest from and allowed to quarantine from other people. Where if it was just the regular flu, um, I know I wouldn't have had that opportunity to rest and catch up on shows and sleep 12 hours a day. And it made me think about how exhausting care work is and how little regard our culture has for it. Um, I have talked with friends who also have had newborn babies, and we have talked about how we had fantasies about breaking our legs when our kids were three weeks, four weeks old, so we could go back to the hospital and be taken care of by nurses. And I thought I was isolated in this thought, and when I talked to other mothers, they had the same thing, which told me that we don't give enough credit to people who care Hagrid is the caregiver at Hogwarts. He cares for the animals, he cares for the grounds, and he is marginalized, literally. This blessing is for you, Hagrid. Thank you. Erin, I think that your voicemail is so wise. Thank you so much. I think that, yeah, you know, we get a lot of people on pilgrimages who are coming because they have been caretakers for a long time and Either those responsibilities have been lifted from them or they are in the midst of trying to figure out how to manage that. And there's something so profound about a long relationship with caregiving that people feel as though they need distance from it in order to process it, right? It's a recurring theme in my chaplaincy and all of the different forms of just the exhaustion associated with acute caregiving in that way. And so I'm really grateful to you calling attention to it. Yeah, thank you, Erin. And also thank you for calling attention to moms, Colette and her friends had a similar experience as you. I don't think that the malady was the same. I don't think it was a broken leg that they wished for, but they did wish for some reason to have someone care for them. And it's also a reminder to those of us who can care for caretakers to do all we can to share their burdens. So thanks so much. And thanks for naming Haggard especially. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Austin Glenn, or A.G. Huffhines, who is 90, a loving husband, father, and granddad. Elizabeth Eggers, who is 62, the flower lady, a devoted wife, mother, friend, and gran. The Reverend Eugene H. Hoff, who is almost 97, was silly, wise, joyful, loving, and beloved. 
Siomara Misseldine, who was one year old, was loved always and is no longer in pain. Gail Carlo, who's 84, a steadfast and caring grandfather. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, we now extend blessings to characters in the chapter that we read. Who would you like to bless this week? I would like to bless Mrs. Fig. I love her. a character we do not speak about much in this chapter. I do too. I just, I, it didn't even occur to me the first time I read this book, but it, I thought about it this chapter. She is a valiant, brave hero. <laughs> like there are, there are dementors afoot and she runs into the situation with nothing, with no defense. She doesn't have a wand. She doesn't have any magical ability, but she goes in there to gather up a child she can't carry and Harry to try to get them to safety. And it's just, I mean, it's just bravery. It's like there's no other reason except that she is just super brave and just runs in there in her carpet slippers and does everything she can with what she has. And that's, I'm really just astonished. That was my main takeaway from reading this chapter. I probably doesn't, you don't gather it from our theme conversation. But at the end, when Mrs. Fig runs up, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you should be hiding. <laughs> but she's there rescuing and blessings to Mrs. Fig. And like bossing people around in the best way, right? Like, <laughs> don't put your that's wand right. away. Like, that's very that's like, right. you call 911. She's like taking charge. Right. She's like, that's I'm right. the adult. Mundungus Fletcher was supposed to be, but apparently it's me. That's right. Ah, Mrs. Fig, a goddess. Who are you blessing, Vanessa? I'm blessing Harry. I was really struck by this dream in which he keeps yelling, help me. And the fact that he is not going to yell that for the rest of this book, even though that is what he is feeling. I'm just thinking about all the reasons why none of us really yell, help me, when we're in distress, right? Mm -hmm. Fear that people won't come, fear that they won't come in the right way, or embarrassment of the vulnerability of that. And I just want to normalize yelling help when, you know, we we have a norm at not sorry, ask for help when you want it, not just when you need it. And I, I like want that norm out in the world. Like, we should all be yelling help all the time. So a blessing for Harry and for anyone who feels like they need help. Next week, we're reading book five, chapter two, A Peck of Owls, through the theme of friendship with special guest Michaela Bly. Just before we give our thanks, we want to remind you that you can subscribe for ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts, and you can leave us a review telling us who is better at 30-second recaps. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Aramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Aaron for their voicemail, to Laura Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehat, Courtney Brown, Casper Jacile, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. walks around and he goes to Magnolia Circle? Third Circle. And he's, he's in the Magnolia Crescent. something. And he sees Dudley with his friends and Dudley is a bully. Real. And, and the other Magnolia friends go off Crescent. and Harry's like, hey, big D. De-